Welcome to the Meal Mentor Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay S. Nixon. This is the 24th episode, and I'm really excited because 24 is my favorite number. But it's our 24th episode in the co-pilot series where we chat about making the plant-based lifestyle more doable, especially while facing a lot of the challenges and roadblocks we all face on our journey to living better and losing weight and feeling good. Today's guest is our first repeat. I'm really excited to have her back. She was a previous guest. She co-piloted with myself and Carly, and we had a fun, it was a girls episode. We talked all about dating and finding activities to do either with a potential love or even our friends that aren't necessarily food related. And it was an amazing episode, so definitely check out it. But really, I'm just so excited to have Jessica back because she's so fun and she has a master's in psychology. So she's going to sort of break down some psychological reasons why we feel a certain way, how we do things, and give us some practical advice from her own, you know, successes, but also from her teaching. So a big welcome back to Jessica. Hey, hey, thanks for having me. I'm so glad you decided to come on again. So before we jumped on the podcast, we were talking a little bit about what's been going on in the forums and and in the group and what people have been saying and their struggles with. And you found it really fascinating, you know, given your history and your experience and your education in psychology. Maybe you could tell us a little bit. Yeah, so um, we've been talking a lot on the the forums, had a lot of conversations about how we get around dealing with our emotions without stuffing them down. And, you know, it's really important that we sit with intentions when we sit with our emotions. You know, we really need to allow ourselves to experience them. And part of that is accurately identifying and labeling the emotion. Mm -hmm. So we can accurately label an emotion, we're then observing it without judgment. And once you can do that, you begin to accept it which is really important. You know, one thing, um, so, you know, fear plus acceptance um, is just fear. But if you've got fear and then you can't accept that fear, it turns into shame and to guilt and it, it, it exacerbates itself. And how we feel affects our behaviors and our behaviors affects affect how we feel it's it's very cyclical process Mm -hmm. and you know um one of my favorite sayings actually is from robert frost and it's it's really simple the only way out is through i love that yeah so and you know we might feel like emotions are too difficult for us to bear or to understand um and you know that's what leads us often to eat to soothe and escape but if we can learn to appreciate the, the functions of feelings and the role that they play in our lives, and then we go even further and we explore our beliefs about those feelings and we notice and label those feelings, we can break that, that linkage between dealing with our feelings with food. Um, and I'm by no means perfect at this. I'm confident <laughs> I sit down and decide, you know, am I lonely or am I bored and if I'm lonely what does that what am I really lonely for and about um it's complicated absolutely and I mean I'm not by no means perfect either but I definitely think it's true and I think that in our modern society there's so many emotions that we're 
told to not have. Like it's not okay to never be not happy or something. But I tell people, no, it's fine. You can have darkness and lightness. It's totally fine to have these emotions where you're not happy or you're angry or you're frustrated. Obviously you want to control them and get through them and get past them. We don't want to live in a state of unhappiness, but I just think it's unrealistic to assume we can all be happy all the time. And Carly and I were just having a discussion the other day where we were saying one thing that really drives us both crazy is when we are frustrated or we're having a bad day or we're really upset or we're heartbroken and our moms both do this. They're like, oh, just be happy. Smile. Oh. You're so much prettier when you smile. It's like, that's the worst thing in the You know, it like makes it so much worse and they mean well, but it's like, I don't want to be happy right now. Yeah, that's. That's the worst. <laughs> it's like, I, everyone hates that. It's like, don't tell me to be happy. <laughs> but um, I think it's true. And like, it's, and, and like, you're all these things you're supposed to be embarrassed about. It's like, no, it's just something that happened in life. You don't have to feel the shame or the embarrassment. But like you said, when you don't treat it, when you don't deal with it, it just becomes uglier. Well, and you can't turn off feelings, right? Right. Um, I love these sayings, and one of my favorites is the problem is the solution. So in other words, the problem is the way we try to get rid of feelings, not the experience of feeling itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, this this one might, you know, be close to home. If you struggle with, you know, with panic and anxiety, the actual feeling of anxiety is likely not as big of a handicap as we think it is compared to the behavior we used to try to avoid the panic. Yes. Right? Mm-hmm. So, like, avoiding traveling or staying close to home and, you know, overeating. Mm-hmm. So, a more helpful strategy is actually to experience those feelings rather than, than trying to turn them off. Right. I love that. And it's true, though, because the more I find that I try not to feel something or I try to combat the feeling, I only do myself a greater disservice. Yeah. And it's sort of like, um, I remember a horrible example, I think, but I went through like this phase where instead of being sad about having ended this one relationship and sort of processing it, processing through it and sort of mourning the end of that relationship, I just like jumped into a new one. And I think a lot of young girls do that, but I did this chronically for a really long time until I got to the point where I was just like, I think I'm just still really upset and heartbroken from like three dudes ago. That's so funny you say that. See, I'm the complete opposite. If I'm in a relationship, it's awesome and it's fantastic. And I'm, you know, but when I come out of that, I'm like, gosh, I think I need at least as long as I was in the relationship to be by myself, to do what I want to do and not have to report to anybody. Just (laughs) check in with me. That's funny. But it's true. It's just, we're all such different people with how like our psyches work and our minds. And for me, um, being diagnosed with anxiety was like the best thing that ever happened for me. Not only because then I had this thing that I knew I could work on and, and deal with, but I just was like, oh, there's an answer. Like I was just so relieved to know that there was something and that it was like something I could work with. But a friend of mine, I remember when she got diagnosed with anxiety, it was like really depressing for her. And she was like, but now I've been labeled. And it's like, we just had such totally different reactions to this thing and neither one of us is right or wrong our reactions are our reactions but it was just very interesting to me to realize how different everyone copes or responds to various emotional changes yeah 
And I have definitely tried to eat my emotions. I've actually said that even at Happy Hour Before Headquarters. I've been like, let's go get sushi. I need to eat my emotions. I mean, I just like said that out loud in the office. Well, and so I guess uh, <laughs> one of the most interesting things that I learned when I was getting my master's was this idea that if you are making it so that you're feeling less, there's a good chance you're actually eating more. And it seems kind of contradictory, right? Like, so how does suppressing emotion lead to increased eating of comfort food? Well, I think it, the research was showing that one possibility is that the act of suppression is itself emotionally depleting. And you think you're picking the easy way out, but you really aren't. So you're expending all this energy on stifling your feelings. And then you're left with, you know, a few resources when it comes to monitoring food. Mm. That's really fascinating. Yeah. And it makes me actually brought when you were saying that I thought of this book or study or something I read where it said that even like replaying issues over and over and constantly talk about them gives you this sort of like false sense of a solution, even though there really isn't one. And it yes. actually like is two steps back. And I thought of that as you were talking about the suppression of the emotions with food. Yeah. I, um, I'm one of those, I'm a ruminator, <laughs> and so I will replay past events from years ago, and that is something I'm really trying to work on is, all right, it's, you know, 10 years in the past, there's nothing I can do to change mm -hmm. it, um, time to stop letting that record go on and on. And it's like um, keep playing, yeah. Yes. And I'm the same way, like, I'll think, I actually, and I still, to this day, I'm 33 years old, I've been out of high school and college for a really long time, and I will still have nightmares that I didn't go take an exam. Yeah. I'm like, okay, we need to stop <laughs> worrying about school. Because <laughs> that was how long ago? Yeah. <laughs> and it's funny, too, because I just saw in the forums today that someone was saying that they had what they called meat nightmares, where they have, you know, they've been plant-based or vegan for so several months now, and they keep having these nightmares that they eat, like, a McDonald's burger or, like, a Taco Bell taco. And I've heard this from a lot of people, and I'm like, I think it's just our brain processing our new life and coping with some, I don't know, emotions or fears or something that's way down in there. That makes sense. Yeah, I was like, why? <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, I don't know. Why do I still have this fear that I slept through or didn't turn a paper in? Or my favorite, there have been times where I, like, suddenly was not graduating high school. I'm like, I <laughs> went to law school. I have a doctorate. Clearly, <laughs> this isn't even possible. <laughs> like, all of a sudden, I wasn't going to graduate high school. Like, they just found out that um, I didn't do some paper or something, and so they're taking it, my degree <laughs> In my high school promo way. I'm like, why do I have these dreams? But um, I, yeah, I have them with food too. Like I'll, I'll like eat weird stuff. Not necessarily it's not vegan. It's just like, why did I eat a bag of Oreos in my dreams? <laughs> why did I do that? <laughs> but no, it is. It's definitely true. And I think that um, it's like a short term thing. I remember in an overeaters group that I was in that people said that they would overeat to avoid feeling, you know, these unpleasant emotions or whatever. And even though they were like so uncomfortable because they ate so much, that felt better to them than having to deal with like their divorce or um, a death or just like something not happening or some kind of sad emotion. And I always thought like, well, if only you could just 
process it. Because what happened was, is eventually they would have to come around to being upset about their divorce or not getting a promotion or a breakup or a death. And on top of that, they would have all of their hate talk against themselves because they binged. And so it was like doubly um, painful. I don't think we fully understand that by not dealing with it and then creating this behavior, this sort of automatic response by overeating that really we're just making it worse because we've connected all of these feelings of guilt around food. Mm -hmm. And I I think we forget that. (laughs) Yeah. And it's, it's even the language which I see a lot of times is people say, oh, I was bad today or hey, this is a bad food. I'm like, oh, no, no, no. I never like to say like, this is like, oh, is this bad? Is this good? I'm like, no, no. I never want to say that I'm a bad person or that I made a bad choice or that it's a bad food. I could say like, there's a healthier one or I made a less healthy or, you know, I didn't strive to my absolute best today, but I never like to say good or bad because then if you say, oh, it's a bad food and you eat it, then what are you, a bad person? Of course you're not a bad person. You just didn't make an optimal choice. Yeah, um, connecting morality to food is uh, I, I, something I learned from my mom, and I think it's most of us probably have learned that mm-hmm. from you know a parent or a close relative, and that's something I go back and I tell her all the time. Why do you call bad good bad food versus good food? Like that doesn't make any sense. Mm-hmm. But um, I love her, so. (laughs) Right. And I love that you say it's like attaching morality to food because we're not any more or less moral based on the foods that we eat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you've ever read Intuitive Eating by Mm -hmm. Evelyn Tribble, right? I think that's Amazing book. Yes. And I was remembering not that long ago that she uses play, um, play food instead of like junk food or bad food. And um, it's a, the idea is that, you know, I, I'm going to play with that for a little bit, but it's not, you know, my main thing. And so it helps lead to this idea that it, it, maybe it's not a, a food that you would have in your rotation all the time, but occasionally you're going to play with it. And so, I don't know, I think it's kind of That's a really interesting strategy it. for sure. But I'm going to play with that. Yeah, I can see that. I don't know. And I also think that when we're like attaching morality to the food and good good food versus bad food, it propagates our perfectionist tendencies. And there's a lot of that. Um, a lot of perfectionist tendencies um, on the form, which isn't necessarily a bad thing per se, but um, I think when you when we start labeling foods good and bad, and then inherently we're labeling ourselves good and bad, it, um, it, it's a struggle because that tendency to be a perfectionist makes it more difficult for us to accept our bodies and ourselves, mm-hmm. and we're always then finding imperfections. Oh, totally. And I mean, I am like such a perfectionist. I have extreme OCD. I mean, it's, I'm, if there was a scale of zero to 10, I would be 11. I'm serious. I'm so, I have such bad OCD and I'm such a crazy perfectionist. And one thing that I've shared in the forums, like I've said that even things like the longer I look at something, the more imperfect I'll make it, whether I'm looking at myself 
or a picture or even a plate of food, like I will just destroy it the longer I stare at it and find all these imperfections. Like when I had to go shopping for a house, oh my God, my poor <laughs> husband, I can't believe we're still married. <laughs> Bless him. <laughs> um, Cause it got to the point where he's like, okay, she's been in there for 10 minutes. We need to get her out. <laughs> um, but no, but that's definitely been true with like food. And I had this, I finally had to come to this place where I stopped using the good and the bad because I was like, okay, I am not a bad person or a crap this or any less perfect because then my friends wanted to come to this Asian restaurant and they don't have brown rice because you know what? White rice and some steamed veggies is a bazillion times better than the deep fried egg roll that I would have ordered. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm rocking right now in this situation that I'm in. <laughs> is it my utopia? No, but I can't like hate on myself for what's not, you know, because the perfection in my mind was not available to me. Yeah. <laughs> and like, I used to get super mad when my husband would make the bed and be like, no, it's wrong. And I would, you know, redo it. And, um, I had to come as part of like my OCD to realize that it's not wrong. He didn't do it wrong. My way is not the only way. It's just, he didn't do it the way I happen to prefer it. But a preference doesn't equal perfection. Yeah. And so like with your example of the bed and, um, the house situation, right? So imperfection isn't just like a personal, it's not our personal problem, right? Like, oh, it, it's my imperfect body. Imperfection is all around us. It's a natural part of existing. Mm -hmm. like, um, <laughs> so to expect perfection is really an unbearable standard. Mm-hmm. All right, like snowflakes, for example, right? Each snowflake is perfectly imperfect. And yet we're able to recognize that beauty mm -hmm. of that. But we struggle to see that in ourselves. That's a really good point. Every once in a while, I have a deep moment. <laughs> <laughs> I really love that, though. I'm going to use that snowflake from now <laughs> But it's so true. And um, I, I do like to think of all the things in this world that are imperfect and that's what makes them so beautiful just so gorgeous and so perfect in their own way and I mean if you look at a weed in the right light it's stunning and most people would be like it's a weed but it can be <laughs> but it can be beautiful it can be you know perfect in the in, even though it makes the lawn imperfect I guess where it is well and that's that's actually a really cool example I think because there's a lot of weeds that are actually edible and, mm -hmm. and are really nutritious. Like, um, I'm going to butcher the name, Purslin. Is that P-U-R-S-L-A-N-E? I'm not going to say it any better than you. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I think you pronounce it Purslin. Um, but it is an amazing uh, wild edible herb or weed. And as long as, you know, if you find it in the wood, you should enjoy it because it's full of, protein and all kinds of great nutrients and yet we just see a weed and we, <laughs> we try to strike it down right we try to pull it up and kill it yeah yeah <laughs> i took a survival class a few years ago and it was all like all we did was you know forage for weeds and stuff and i was like man there's all these things that people pull out of their yard and they hate it and it's like if some natural disaster came you would be very sorry you pulled them off <laughs> pull them all up because that would have been food because what is there is not edible now <laughs> and I remember having that thought and being like huh 
hmm, well, the next time my neighbors tell me I don't landscape very well, I'm going to point this out. <laughs> I'm it just, can come have some. I'm waiting for apocalypse. the apocalypse. I'm going to share my weeds with you. <laughs> <laughs> Though that probably wouldn't be the weed they would really want if you truly were having an apocalypse. Right, right. That's not the weed they want. Um, so kind of in a different shift but still true is one thing that I have found deeply fascinating is how much our environment can affect us, especially in terms of like our, you know, our emotional state. And I don't just mean like, oh, I'm in a stressful situation or my boss is a jerk. I mean, even something like the color of paint on your walls. And there's been so many great studies, a really interesting book. Well, two um, is Mindless Eating, but more for the environmental is the second book by the same author, which is Slim by Design. And he talks about how, you know, having a box of cereal on your counter, just having that box there on the counter, you're going to be 10 pounds heavier than someone who doesn't have cereal on the counter. And he goes on to explain why that is, but it's, you know, all the marketing on the box is constantly kind of subliminally messaging you. And then it's just there and it's easy and you just can, you know, put a handful in your mouth at any time. Um, but just, it's amazing how our minds are just triggered constantly. That is, those are such great books. And um, I love the example from Slim by Design when he's talking about the Chinese buffet. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> by having the buffet owners put in the, a line of you know, plants, shrubbery, mm-hmm. or some sort of walls, partitions. So people that are eating, you, don't, you can't just easily see the buffet. And then if you sit as far away from the buffet as possible... All those little things just make it so much easier to not to not keep going back. And that, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, and I've actually tested a few of his things out. It was very funny that after I read some by design, I went on a three-week cruise in Asia and um, where there are buffets. And I was able to really kind of sit there and observe. And also, my husband did not read the book with me. And so I kind of used him as like my control group because <laughs> he did not know what I was doing and why I was constantly sitting in different areas of the buffet. And without fail, as he said, if you face the buffet or you're close to it, um, either one, if you're facing it and you're close to it, it's like a double whammy, you will eat more. And no joke, my husband would get two more plates. Wow. Every, and I would too, but I was like, well, maybe I'm psyching myself out because I know this. But I would watch him. And then I started watching other people and we then made friends because it was three weeks so we started making friends on the ship and had you know meals with certain couples Mm -hmm. and I would even use them as my like control group because they they didn't read the book they didn't know what I was doing they're just like oh she wants to sit by the window today (laughs) you know whatever (laughs) Lindsay's so weird with her constant need to sit at a different table um but I I saw it with them too and uh it was just so surprising to me how these cues um are amazing and it's it's changed me because I won't sit at bars anymore like when I go out with my girlfriends I'm like we can't sit at the bar and they're like why and I'm like because we'll drink more mm-hmm. yeah. because you constantly see this bartender making more drinks and so it normalizes it and so it's it seems normal to have a fourth or a fifth drink but if you're over in your corner just talking you don't see that and it's, it's just crazy how well it really works to move yourself <laughs> but um, you have to be aware of it though and, uh, but even like the color of your kitchen was really surprising to me. Unfortunately, I can't paint my kitchen, but, um, 
Now that I know, my next kitchen will be a different color. <laughs> what color is your kitchen? It's black and white, which okay. is like one of the worst ones. But I did put bright yellow chairs in my kitchen, and they're super uncomfortable because that's one thing he says is like make the sitting stuff in your kitchen or your dining room extremely uncomfortable so you don't want to like hang out there. Um, and so I did that, and sure enough, we literally only sit at the table to eat and then we move because they're like metal bar stools and they're from Target so they're literally as like basic and uncomfortable as you can hope for <laughs> unless maybe Ikea so, maybe the Ikea could be more uncomfortable yeah. <laughs> and that's so interesting and um you know we more and more like this idea that um the kitchens are the center of the home and you know so everyone always gathers in the kitchen yeah. there's always mm-hmm. food out and um so that's interesting. Yeah, I approach. have I have this big layout in my house. So there's my kitchen, and then there's like a long living room. And the kitchen and living room are divided by like a, a bar where you could sit at. And um, I have you know couches and chairs and tape and like stairs are actually um, behind the couch and it's open so people could even sit on the stairs and continue having conversations with people sitting on like the couches and stuff. And at parties, without fail, even if I put the food in the living room section and not in the kitchen, they still migrate to the kitchen, which is like a fourth of the size of the living room. (laughs) They all end up like literally bumper to bumper in this small space of the kitchen and the food finds its way back to the kitchen too. And I'm like, this is unbelievable. (laughs) It like, without fail, every party we have. And I'm just like, this is crazy. But it's just like how it happens. But I go to parties at houses and I do the same thing. I find myself in the kitchen, so I can't really judge. But it's like, the society things but it's yeah it's definitely been interesting and I love both of those books so much about the bazillions of clues that are out there and you're never going to outsmart them all but I really do feel you can be mindful of some of them and combat them and I do I'm like oh I know what you're trying to do and you're not going to get me jelly beans (laughs) (laughs) at some point I would love to go to that, that restaurant oh god me too yeah, it's like, gosh, would I be susceptible to the never-ending bowl of soup? Right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I um, when I was at Cornell, I taught for a course through eCornell with the T. Colin Campbell Foundation, and I like begged up, down, right, left to be able to go to this restaurant because it's on, it's near the campus, and they weren't open any of the days I was there, and it was just like the biggest heartbreak of my life. I was like. <laughs> guys, can't you call it a favor? They're like, no, Lindsay, we, can, we don't have the magic to like whip out a study prog like that day for you. I was like, but I, okay. <laughs> and for those who haven't heard, read the books, there is a restaurant near Cornell's campus, which is where the author Brian Ronsink does all of his research out of. He has a food lab there. But anyway, they take over this restaurant periodically to run like, you know, double blind studies to sort of test these things and one that Jessica was was mentioning is they equipped all the bowls on the table to automatically refill with soup so your soup bowl never emptied like it just never emptied it never decreased it just stayed constant and um, they were able to use that to see how much more people ate and um, it was really quite uh, shocking to see how much they ate. But other things in the book too that are really fascinating, and again, it goes to psychology, 
is so for example there were two bottles of wine one was from california and one was from italy and people like just think california wine's gross like if you just stop someone off the side of the street even in here in california they'll be like oh yeah it's, it's crap i can't drink california wine so what they did was they put the california wine in the italy bottle and the italian wine in the california bottle didn't tell anyone and at the end of the night everyone was like oh my god that Italian wine was like the best I've ever had. California wine's mm -hmm. garbage, told you so. Yeah, they were really drinking Italian wine. <laughs> but um, it's just like the power of suggestion. That and part of that too is the the price. Like if you oh, make that's something right. more expensive, mm -hmm. people automatically perceive that it has added value when it, it could be totally not at all related. Yeah, they were putting like sticker, like, on $2 bottles of wine, they were putting stickers that said it was like $20. Oh, oops, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed. We forgot to take that sticker off kind of thing. <laughs> and it, people were again, you know, going, oh my God, this is so amazing. And like another time with the soup one that was so fascinating is that they were like, it's a $20 bowl of like tomato soup with this famous French chef. And everyone was like, it's the best soup I've ever had. I was totally worth $20. It was Campbell's. Yeah. And so I always use that when I speak in public and I'm like, so the moral of the story here is if you go into a meal thinking that you're going to like it, thinking you're going to have a good, a good time and it's going to be delicious and you're going to enjoy it, you will. And if you go in with a bad attitude, you're not going to like it. So have the good attitude. That's right. It's all about adding in that positivity. And just that's why sometimes I think if I feel like I'm sort of down a little bit, or like in my car, I'm driving and, and traffic's getting to me, like... I just smile. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Even and if you fake smile it, even if it's like a fake smile, it will make you feel better. Yeah. Like, mm. One of my favorite meditations that I do is you just lay on your back and you close your eyes and you, you know, have a few breaths, but then you picture or imagine the feeling of a smile on your face. You don't actually smile but you just like picture yourself smiling or you um you know just kind of get the feeling of a smile on your face and you truly start feeling tingles and like this glow and shine in your body it's the most amazing thing ever and every time i lead people through it they're like oh my god i can't believe i cultivated that pure beautiful happiness just thinking and I'm like I just that's the thing you and you can access that anytime any day and it's free definitely um you should share that that would be awesome to get a hold of that one I've been collecting um guided meditations and things like that for a little while now trying to really hone in on my on my practice um, I would love to yeah, that's a good idea. Yeah. My friend Jocelyn is like, she teaches meditation, so maybe her and I can, I'll have her on the podcast and we can like lead some meditations in one of these episodes. That's a really great idea. Thank you. I'll yeah. definitely follow up with Jocelyn. But no, it is. It really makes a difference. And it's something that I picked up trying to deal with stress and anxiety and depression and OCD, but it's beautiful and it works so well. Obviously, you can't do it maybe in a car because you have to be like, <laughs> you know, closing your eyes. <laughs> but it's, I, I've done it in all kinds of places. I had to speak at a conference and one of these other speakers, he was really losing it. He was so nervous. He was freaking out. He was like, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to cancel. And I was like, here, go into the, your hotel room, lay on your bed and like do this. I'm going to tell you what to do with the smile. And he was like, I'm ready to go out. Like, he's like, you just changed everything for me. Aww. And I was like, oh. Yes. Aww. Yes. Yeah. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. 
And, uh, oh, so to quarter, kind of go back to where we started when we were saying, um, you know, there's all these emotions and you should be, never judge them. Don't look at it as a good emotion or a bad emotion. Their emotions are just emotions. As humans, there's so many and we're gonna feel them all. But one thing I've come to sort of realize is you can't appreciate one without the other. So you can't really truly appreciate a good day if you don't ever have a bad day. And you can't really embrace happiness if you don't know what it's like to feel sad. And it's like one of those things, my yoga teacher says this all the time, he's like, we all wish for world peace and it would be wonderful, but we would not even be able to appreciate that peace if there hadn't been some kind of strife. Mm -hmm. And so I try to remember that. So yeah, I have frustrations or angers or things that days just don't go my way. Actually, that was yesterday. The whole world seemed like it was just against me. And I was like, okay, this day will eventually end. <laughs> I have to get through it. But um, it's made me appreciate today a whole lot more. Oh, that's a good thing. Yeah, every so day is a new opportunity, right? Exactly. And every meal for that matter. Because I feel like a lot of people maybe have oopsies or screw up in their minds. And then they're like, ah, screw it. And they fall down. It's like, no, 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 it doesn't have to be an ah, screw. We don't have to jump off the ship. Um, we just have to clean up the deck a little bit more for the next time. That's right. That's right. And um, so there, you know how, well, theoretically, we all should be saving, you know, putting money away or whatever, financially securing ourselves mm-hmm. for, for a rainy day or for any setbacks, just creating some sort of buffer um, in our financial lives. I don't think we do that enough in other areas of our life. Um, so really this idea of adding po- positive emotions and positive experiences into our everyday for that exact same thing that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. And um, so for you know deliberately adding these positive emotions or positive experiences, they become a buffer for us to recognize that we can make it through the bad days and the bad times. Um, so I think, I feel like that's really important and it can help reduce, you know, emotional vulnerability and also makes it, creates ways for you to cope with your feelings and your emotions in a different path that doesn't necessarily lead to food. Um, So I I think that's interesting. One one thing that I did a long time ago and I actually, I, need, I pulled this out in January as, as sort of a refresher, was this idea of, you know, taking a look at my, scheduling out what my day was going to be, and then putting um, N for, nourish, for nourishing, like a task that gives me a sense of vigor, or it, I find it restorative, or a D for being a depleting task, something that I had to do that wears me down, whether it's physically or emotionally. And then looking to seeing what the balance of N's and D's were. And oh, I love this. I'm writing this down. This is yeah. brilliant. Um, I can you know type a little note up if you want and send it to you. Yeah, that'd be amazing. I love this. Um, you know, ideally, you you don't want your uh, your D's to be more than your N's. You you know, you should hope for at least a one to one ratio of nourishing activities to depleting activities. And, you know, at the end of the day, you feel so much better if you've at least able to balance those out. But mm-hmm. if you can find a way to 
make your activities, you know, the nourishing and replenishing and, and the things that feel good to you outweigh the depleting tasks, then you are doing all the better. And actually, I took that a step further myself and I was like, how many of these depleting tasks that I scheduled out when I was looking back at the end of the day, how many of those could I have pushed to another day? Did I have to do all of those things in one day? Uh-huh. And, you know, maybe that makes them all even much more overwhelming and, and heavy on my spirit because I'm trying to force all of these tasks into this one day to feel uber productive, but that's maybe counterproductive. And um, if there's not a hard deadline on something, then push it off to a day where it gives you a more balanced ratio between these nourishing activities and the depleting ones. Absolutely. And kind of to go back to where you started with that, you said um, about saving, how we are always, we're always aware that we should be saving money for a rainy day, but we should also do that with sort of like our feelings and our emotions. And that's how I, one of the pieces of advice I got when I went to a financial planner and I became a freelancer and working for myself, I really wanted to, you know, take care of myself. And he's like, the number one piece of advice I have for you is to always pay yourself first. And that makes sense from a business perspective. You should pay yourself first before you pay anyone else. But why should that only be limited to money? Shouldn't I take care of myself first? I mean, can I really be the best sister or mother or wife or friend if I'm not well? Or or I have all these D's in my day and not these N's. And so as you were saying the N and D, I'm like, yes, that's why I do yoga first thing in the morning because that's for me. I pay myself first. I nourish myself. You know, I put my mask on the airplane before helping the person next to me. Yeah. I've, it's amazing to me how little self-love we have mm-hmm. as a society for ourselves. And um, I think we would all be in a much better place if we realized that taking care of yourself isn't a selfish thing. Right. It, it's a selfless thing because then we are able to give more to others because we have made sure that we're fully okay. Um, and it's more. I feel like it's more authentic that way because... There, there's no maybe underlying sense of oh, I'm doing something for you again, and mm-hmm. you know. But I really know I feel like I need something else, and um, I don't know. Yeah, you have to serve yourself to be able to serve others. Is one mm-hmm. of the things that I've really had to learn. You know, as an adult, as a business owner, as everything, is that I have to serve myself first because otherwise, like you, it really is what you said. I love when you said taking care of yourself is not selfish, it's selfless, because if you aren't taking care of yourself, then someone else is going to have to help take care of you. Yep. And so it is and it is selfish in that way, because then, and then you are helping other people because they're not helping themselves, and then you're frustrated by it, and it just creates that cycle of unpleasant feelings. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think part of it too is, is removing that negative connotation to selfish. Like it's it, yeah, it's not selfish no. in a bad way to want to make sure that myself as an individual, I, my needs are being met, right? And that's one of those things that again we as a society keep making so negative. You should never want to care about yourself. You should never want to be selfish. And it's like, why is that so negative? Why is making sure that I am the best person I can be to benefit our community a bad thing? Yeah. Self love. Oh. 
No, and it is, and I really do think, especially as women, that we never think about ourselves. We think about everything else on the friggin' planet, including yep. obsessing about people we don't like and if they like us, um, oh. than about if we like ourselves. It's terrible, and it's I think it's very society-driven, but at the same time, you know, you have to take some responsibility, and it's, I, I do it, and um, we have to really, you know, healthcare is self-care, and you really have to love yourself and you don't have to love all parts of yourself, all parts of the day, but you do need to care for yourself. Yeah. And practice self-love. Yeah. You know, <laughs> I need to work on that too. But I really do think that, you know, self-love has definitely been one of those things. And I mean, there's been times where I'm like, you know what? I just, I, a great example. So my girlfriend who I normally only see her in class on Saturdays, but I saw her on Friday. I was like, oh, what are you doing here, mama? And she's like, I'm taking a Sophie day. And I was like, good for you. She's like, I realized that if I went to work today, I was going to bring everybody else down. And so some people might have said, oh, she's being so selfish taking a day off. Like, oh, my God, she's not even sick and she's taking a sick day. But she really was doing the right thing. She was taking care of herself. And she recognized that by not doing that, everyone else around her would suffer. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, I think that's awesome. I know. I was so inspired by her and her honesty. She like said that out loud. I was like, she just admitted that. That's amazing. Yeah. That self-awareness. So I guess to sort of wrap up all of our topics today, because we've talked about so much already, is one thing that's also been on the podcast when I was talking with Scott and Carly was about the power of words. Yes, and that was course, a great podcast. Mm-hmm, thanks. And um, I know that's a big psychological thing, too, because even so, so one of the things after the weight loss summit and the overeaters workshop is I asked everyone to pick two rules, you know, like I don't eat potato chips, because when you make that rule, you draw that line, you know exactly where you stand and you don't cross it. But a lot of times people were then sharing the rules and they were saying like, I will try to blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, no, 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 no. That's an aspiration. That's not a rule. And, and, and they thought maybe I was being anal or nitpicky or maybe I was just paranoid that they thought I was being anal or nitpicky. But it, it really is like it makes such a difference in your psyche to be like, I, you know, don't eat potato chips versus I will try real hard not to eat potato chips. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious with your, you know, master's in psychology, what you think about that, how words affect us. Oh, I totally think that words are much more powerful then we give them credit for. And, and same with our thoughts. Mm-hmm. And um, I, you are completely correct in, in making those adjustments to, to everyone's rules because you're gonna let, they're going to see that there's a difference, this, this, this bright line mm-hmm. that you're creating by saying, I won't do this as opposed to I'm going to try. Right. Yeah. You know, I mean, when you just, even just saying it out loud, you can hear the, the difference, the subtle difference. Oh, in, in your voice, in your, yeah. like, the authoritative versus the shakiness. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You know, I don't eat potato chips. I'm, I, I'll try not to eat potato chips. And, like, I can't even alter myself. I can't even, like, fake a different tone. That's just what comes out no matter how hard I try with those <laughs> words. Like, oh! But, um, it's, and I really liked how you brought up even not just words we say in general, and I agree, we totally do not recognize the power words have, but even just our thoughts. And on a previous podcast, um, one of the co-pilots was so honest, and she said, why do I say these 
things to myself that I would never say to another person. Or if someone said those to my kid, I would be like devastated. But I say them to myself all day. Yes, we're so mean to ourselves. So mean. Oh my gosh. So uh, I have a good visual practice for that. Oh, great. Um, yeah, so you just take a, um, grab a, a, some sort of like rubber band or something to put around your, around your wrist. And then um, in your pocket or in your purse, put a, a big thing of um, paper clips, like in a Ziploc bag or something. And every time that you're having a negative thought, clip that to the paper clip or the paper clip to the rubber band. And then the next one, clip it to the end, you know, to the paper clip and then on the paper clip. And you, by the end of the day, I, I do this maybe once a month, just as like a visual reminder. Mm-hmm. Some days, at the end of the day, I have a chain of paper clips all the way down to the floor, and then like a foot behind me, like a train. Oh and gosh. I was like, "Wow, that literally those paper clips represent all of the negative weight I'm dragging around me today." And. Um, I was like, okay, I need to really change change this. Um, but it's hard because mm-hmm. you don't realize that you are necessarily thinking a negative thought because you're so used to thinking a certain way and to degrading yourself and to bringing yourself down. And it's just your normal talk that's, hey, I, gosh, I look fat in those jeans today. Mm-hmm. Or um, I'm so stupid for eating that cookie. And you just you've become so accustomed to treating yourself that way that you don't realize really the weight of your thoughts on yourself. That's so true. I, and I, for a while, was wearing a bracelet, and every time I said something negative, I had to switch it to my other arm. And needless to say, because I was switching it so constantly, I broke the bracelet within, like, two weeks. Because <laughs> it was like a rubber band. It was like a bunch of beads with, it, like, an elastic. And one day, the beads just went... You know, everywhere, and I was like, "Well, I think that says it all." <laughs> but, um, but even like just saying negative things about other people is like, I had this one friend who was constantly calling me to gossip, and she wasn't necessarily saying bad things like, "Oh, so and so is bad," or "So and so stupid," but she was just like talking about the other people, and I was like, "When?" has talking about other people or judging other people or saying anything negative about anyone else ever made me feel better about myself. Nope. Never. It has never left me feeling good or better about myself. And I also realized that when I say negative things about other people, even if they are 100% factual, 100% true, my statements are absolutely correct. I'm not like making something up. It's out of jealousy. Mm-hmm. There's some lingering thing under it. Like I was... Um, like this weekend I was railing on this person I know who after years and years and years saying that they would never write books never write books they're now saying they want to write one and I was like oh my god can you believe it can you believe she's saying that what a hypocrite I can't believe she's you know changed her tune or whatever and I realized I was jealous because she was going to have an opportunity to learn from all the mistakes that I had to suffer through in writing my books. Like she mm-hmm. was going to get to skip all that hurt and pain that I went through because she learned from watching me. And that, even though her statement was true, she totally contradicted herself. She totally changed her tune. It still came from a place of jealousy, my negativity towards her. And I had to like recognize that. That's so true. Um, so true. I um, 
I try to stay away from when I'm seeing people having those conversations. I try to sort of step back and go back to my desk and, and not participate in that. But it's so tough because then, you know, they're like, oh, why did you want to come and gossip with us? And right. <laughs> it's, it's crazy, like, how easily we fall into those types of behaviors. Yeah, and recently, um, you know, there was a big news story about a certain celebrity, and it got so much coverage. And at first, I was really mad because of the kind of coverage it was getting. Well, I guess I'll just say what it was. It was the whole Bruce Caitlyn Jenner thing. Mm -hmm. And initially, I was really upset because I'm like, here Caitlyn Jenner is, a female, for all of a hot minute, and all anyone can talk about is if she's pretty and how much better she looks now and she's skinny. Yeah. And I was getting so mad about that. And I don't think I was wrong to feel that way, but then I realized I was like judging everybody else's reaction. <laughs> and so then I wasn't really any better. And then I just, because initially I was like, but there's so much more to her than just being pretty. It's like such an amazing story of being true to oneself. And, and then I was like, wait, I'm not really helping the situation and I'm still gossiping and judging in my mind. I'm just gonna, you know, Godspeed, Caitlin. I'm not talking about it anymore. <laughs> yeah. But then all my friends were like, but don't you want to talk about it? And they kept like trying to talk to me about it. I'm like, no, Godspeed to Caitlin. That's all I can like, say. And then everyone's like, Lindsay's so weird. <laughs> Why won't she join in on the conversation and have an opinion? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just going to go over here and yeah. eat some well, kale. <laughs> well, it's because by refusing to participate, you're refusing to validate them. When you join in, you're validating the behavior or the discussion. Even if you don't fully participate, just being there listening, it's you're validating it. Mm -hmm. So, not that I'm by any means perfect. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's a really interesting perspective. Yeah. Um, so another, another one of my favorite quotes, and I think... Um, based on all the, the interesting places the conversation went today. I feel like this yeah, is a We good were one. everywhere today. <laughs> this is a good one to wrap up because I, I think it connects thematically sort of what we're talking about. And um, it's by Carl Rogers. And uh, the curious paradox is that when I accept myself just as I am, then I can change. Oh, I like that. That's a good one. And I feel like um, sort of the underlying theme for most of what we talked about today was um, acceptance of our behaviors, our actions, our thoughts. And you know, we all say we want we want to change and to grow, um, but you have to appreciate and understand who you are right now to be able to to see and project with that change. In the future, what you want that to be. Um, so, I like that quote. Yeah, I love it, and it's really true. Like a lot of times, um, and this came up on another podcast recently too. Is a lot of times we're so focused on where we're going that we fail to look back at all of the path we've already traveled, or we fail to stop and appreciate the moment that we're already at because we're too busy looking at where we want to go. Yeah. And um, I really feel like not celebrating those victories in between because there's there, and that's the thing. Even when you finally get to this destination that you 
been obsessing over, once you're there, guess what? You're going to just see another one, another mountain off in the distance that you want to run off to. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, it's so true. And um, you know, celebrating the little things, you know, stopping and smelling the roses, there's, there's truth to those. Absolutely. Oh, it's been so wonderful. I hate to hate to end the episode because it's always I love having you and it went way too fast. So I guess that just means you have to come on again. Yes, for sure. Good, good, good. Oh, well, it's been wonderful. And I guess before we wrap up, is there any other because I just love this. I'm going to do it. I actually already have the um, rubber band around my wrist and I just need to go find my paper clips. I love that. Do you have any other tips or visuals or anything that um, people can use when they're struggling or just as a as self-awareness? Anything. Oh. Uh, That's um, a whole other know. podcast, right? <laughs> oh, on the paper clip thing? Um, one way, I, I guess, so I started doing it with just the long chain of things, but that works really well if you don't have to leave your house. If you have to leave your house, just put them all along on the um, rubber band and you'll feel the weight that way too. Like mm. it'll connect, especially when you can't find room on your rubber band for right. another paper clip. <laughs> that makes sense. I feel like I'm going to be wearing one that's like a bracelet that connects to a necklace, that connects to another bracelet, that connects to a belt, <laughs> that's like down to an anklet. <laughs> I feel like that's where I'm headed, but I guess we will see tomorrow. Yeah. And then definitely check out, you know, this idea of, of identifying your tasks as something that's nourishing and, and depleting and you go like, wow. I'm doing yeah. a lot for other people, but nothing for me. I also have, like, it's not the nourishing and I'm going to start doing this, but um, I have this method. It's the ABCDE method, and I didn't create this, so I can't claim it. I think I read it in learning how to be the 1%, which is, like, 1% maximum productivity, not, like, the rich 1%. Um, though I guess those two things could be related. But anyway, so every day you're supposed to start your day off writing A, B, C, D, E. And A is like the most important thing you have to do that day. Like if nothing else could get accomplished that day, that's the A thing. And then the B thing is like whatever's after that. Like you probably really, really should get it done that day. But if in worst case scenario, you do it first thing the next day, it's okay. C is kind of like, it's pressing, it's coming up, but as you were saying, okay, maybe I don't have to do this today, there's not like a deadline today, and then D is for delegate, and E is for eliminate, and E is the hardest for me, but there are things in your life that you just need to eliminate, like, you just need to do less, people, like, <laughs> yes. I really have come to appreciate that, like, there are things I just don't need to do. Um, so, e, that's, but anyway, I'm gonna start doing that now. When I write my A, B, C, D, E's, I'm also gonna have my nourish and depletion. I like that, and I'm gonna steal um, your A, B, C, D, E because the E, just for the E alone. Oh yeah, and it's the hardest. You think it's not, but oh, it is. Yeah, I promise. Yeah, because there's always this this sense of obligation, and and if you don't do something, you're not good enough, and you're letting somebody else down potentially. And, 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 and. Yeah, it goes back to self-care and not yeah. being, you know, afraid to be selfish for selfless. Yeah. 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 Good. All right. Lots of good <laughs> strategies. As always, amazing to have you on Jessica. I'm so glad that I've already convinced you to come on for a third episode, um, which would, I guess, because you're what? I can't remember your first number, so we'll have to figure it out to plan it. 
But 24, awesome episode, awesome number. Um, the 25 one, the next one's gonna be great too. I'm having, it's my second person, Beth Ashley. She was my very first oh, podcast. Yeah. yeah, so she's gonna be on at following you. Um, so yeah, so it'll be fun to have her back for the 25th. Um, but as always, amazing to have you, Jessica, and all your perspective. And um, if you didn't hear her first episode when she was my co-pilot with my assistant, Carly, it's such a fun girl talk episode. Super fun. Must hear it. Must hear it. And if you want to learn more about the meal plans that we use and the forums and the community that we've been talking about this entire time, uh, visit GetMealPlans.com. Thanks again, Jessica. Awesome. Thank you.